Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Mark as we continue our study in the book of Mark. We'll be at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13 this morning. And Mark has been indeed a rich book to study as a church, to think through together as we follow what Mark uniquely brings to the church as we understand the person and the work of Jesus, his call towards discipleship. And these large themes begin to emerge in Mark. We start to recognize that there is this universal call of discipleship. As Jesus enters into this world to deal fully with the depth of sin and be raised again to claim victory over it, you start to see he's also building this picture of what discipleship means. And all along, as you've continued on in Mark, there's this growing gap between who you might think Jesus is and who he actually is, what he is describing about what disciples are rightly meant to do and be and what they think they are rightly meant to do and be. And these gaps continue to grow and grow. And as we continue on in Mark, especially as Jesus is approaching the triumphal entry, entering back into Jerusalem, you probably, if you were amongst his disciples, would sense the growing tension of all of a sudden we're coming to this moment of we're heading to the big city where all this happens and we're hoping that Jesus does something. You've seen his power. You've seen his authority. You've seen the way that he teaches. You see the way that he carries himself, the support that he gathers just in what he does. And now he's heading up to Jerusalem. And so the questions begin to rise and emerge. And here in Mark chapter 10, we start to see a couple of different primary questions, especially as they are related to discipleship and the disciples. One of them being in relation to divorce. How are we to think about this? And there's something behind that of the hardness or softness of heart that Jesus is after. And now we come to children, and then it'll be to riches and wealth. And there's certain things that Jesus is wanting to teach his disciples through these things. And there are things that he is actually doing with both those who are asking those questions, but also things he wants his disciples to understand and disciples everywhere to understand about what true discipleship looks like. And so as we plunge in here, we're looking at verses 13 through 16. We start to see what he's saying about children as his disciples enter in pretty strongly in and of themselves of what they think. He is correcting them to a certain degree. And he is showing us what is it that a disciple who is really a citizen in my kingdom going to look like, behave like? What characteristics might they have? What characteristics do I want to foster? And he starts to show us these things very clearly here. We often have many of our own thoughts and expectations about what entering the kingdom of God might require of us, what it might mean for us. Even the disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes, all of these people have different opinions and they start to fire off those opinions saying, might it be this? Might it be this? And the fact that they continually bring these things back to Jesus tells you that they think he might know something about this because of the authority in which he carries himself. They start to recognize this guy is bringing the kingdom with him. There's no doubt about that. This guy is the prophet that we've been looking for and it's starting to become more and more clear and they're saying, 
if you have a spot in your kingdom, Jesus, and you have a way in and you seem to know what you're doing, might I get in? <laughs> might I sit near you? Might I be able to, if I do these things, if I do that? And this little side story with children starts to become kind of helpful in the whole thing, that Jesus kind of focuses our attention here. And our questions about who will enter into the kingdom continue on to today. It's a very common question in America. Even as we think back on our own history, there has been many different awakenings in which we see the Lord seemingly work in massive movements. The first great awakening in America in the 18th century, two major figures begin to emerge here, one of them being George Whitfield. And if you study anything about this guy, he was an unusual person just in general. Benjamin Franklin did some research and study on him. And the unique way that God gifted him to preach the gospel was unlike anything we've probably ever seen or will ever see again. This guy, in his natural voice, could speak at 90 decibels. I don't know if that makes any context for you, but 70 decibels is very loud <laughs> for a human speaker. So 90, would have, he would have broadcast, and Benjamin Franklin, in his research, he said this guy could have preached to up to 125,000 people. And he was a pretty thoughtful researcher. And he just, you know, humbly said, well, he could, because there was times that, uh, Regularly, he'd preach to crowds of 30,000. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin's trying to make sense of this. And he's like, well, he actually probably could, with that vocal range, could reach up to 125,000 people. And his largest group was 80,000. So that's under certain conditions and all that. I mean, you, you look at that type of person and you're like, surely that guy is a great minister of the gospel, carrying forward the call of the Great Commission in a powerful way. And you saw the church just explode through his preaching, both in England and America. You're like, that, certainly that guy's going to get into heaven, right? <laughs> uh, and then there was actually followers, as you can imagine, that emerge around George Whitfield, and then other followers around another key figure, John Wesley. And this guy was still a very gifted preacher in his own right, and extremely gifted in organizing discipleship and structuring the church and creating some models for the church that actually created one of the largest denominations in America. And so you start to see this guy, and you're like, man, the long-term impact of what he did carried forward even the work of George Whitfield. And so as you can imagine, all of their uh, followers of George Whitfield and John Wesley start to argue. And one of the debates, as I was reading their uh, <laughs> biographies was which one's going to be in heaven because they started to not like each other as you can also imagine and it's like well you know obviously John Wesley's not going to be in heaven because we disagree with his theology and, and vice versa and George Whitfield one of the things he says is I imagine John Wesley will be fit, sitting so close to Jesus that I won't even be able to see him and so we start to look at that guy, and you're like, man, he's great, and he's humble. Surely that's the reason he's getting into heaven. And that is often our mindset and perspective, is to think, well, it may not just be great people that get into heaven, but at least humble great people that make it into heaven. And yet Jesus drives us right to this point where he says, I know your expectations about who might be at the, in the kingdom of heaven, seated with Jesus, and I do understand those, and I understand what's driving those, but I'm going to confront it a little bit. And here in this passage, 
we see this confrontation. So if you have your Bibles open, let's turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. If you're able and willing, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word here? It says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's do pray as we study God's words here for us in Mark. Father God, we do come before you asking for your help. Lord, would you help us as a church to be able to grapple with these words you've left for us in Mark chapter 10, to understand them well, to be cut to our core, to be able to respond to your words in a way that directs our feet, our hands, our minds. Lord, would we not just hear words from Scripture and push them off as if they didn't matter. But Lord, this morning even, as we study these words, help us to understand what some of these central tenets of discipleship that you were pushing your own disciples and those watching towards. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Would you be with us? In Jesus' name, amen. So as you hear this text, one of the things, it almost feels like a tangent, a side point, some odd little story that comes up, and yet Jesus is using this very particularly. And one of our questions, along with the questions of the disciples, was, all right, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. We want to know who gets in. And the children start to move forward, and the disciples are getting more and more frustrated, and they're saying, no, who gets into the kingdom? Who's going to be allowed in? How will I get near you, Jesus? When we get to Jerusalem, we've got to have a game plan. Is it greatness? Is it humility and greatness? Is it following you? Is it being here? Like, t- just give us a little, and the kids keep getting in the way, and they say, get out of here. Like, we're trying to ask Jesus a question here. And so here we see that Jesus very simply and patiently stops the whole thing and uses this situation to teach his disciples something very impactful that they needed desperately, and we need desperately in the church as well. So we see very clearly that on some base level that God values children in his kingdom. We have to make sense of what does that mean? What does that look like? But at a very simple level, God values children in his kingdom. God has a specific value of children in general. And he would say, I am willing to stop what I'm doing and speak to these children, to engage with them, to talk with them. So at a very simple level, he values children. And then we have to ask, how is it then that God values children in his kingdom? What does this look like? What is he teaching us here? What does he want us to glean from this? That there is a specific value for children in his kingdom. A few things we're going to see here. Firstly, we're going to see that he values them by identifying their place in his kingdom. He identifies their place in his kingdom. Let's look back at verses 13 to 14 again. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. 
And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let them children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was indignant with his disciples. This attitude towards children that were being brought to him caused him this sense of frustration and anger and displeasure with them that is very specific. God had often felt a similar type of indignation towards his people. Jesus, being God himself, would have seen certain characteristics in his people. And here this word comes up again and it says, Jesus was indignant with their attitude towards children. And this is not new for God when it's related to his people. When his people rejected God's covenant, he had this indignation. When they sinned willfully, when they went after other gods, when they did atrocious things, when they sacrificed their own children, he was indignant with them. In fact, in Psalms it says, God is indignant every day. Psalm 7 says this. The the indignation here that is described could probably be described as righteous anger. The feeling in your gut that rises when you hear someone say something that cuts at the core of who you are and what you believe. You know what this feels like when you're sitting somewhere and that feeling in your gut that drumps all the way up into your mouth and you're like, ugh, where did that come from? Driven by the very core of who you are. And the type of rebuke that the disciples are giving to these children is actually the same language in the Greek, the same language as that was used for casting out demons. They're saying, get out of here. You have no place here. We don't want you anywhere near us. And Jesus is saying, that is not what belongs in my kingdom. They have a value given by God. And we look at children and we say, I get to determine their value. I get to say whether or not they might have value. And God looks at children and he says, no, I've defined their value. And so when I look at these children, I see it very clearly. This goes into everything that we start to think about children in the church. Where do they derive, where does anyone derive their value from? If you've ever heard of a guy named Peter Singer, this is a philosopher in our day and age who's probably one of the chief motivators behind the abortion industry. And one of the things that he wants to say in his writings is he will say, children don't really have value. They are valueless. In fact, the only value that anyone brings to the table is that which they contribute to society. And he is trying to actually create a picture of ethics in the world that actually excludes God entirely. And he's being very consistent in this. And he's saying, if you do that, the only value someone has is that which they bring to society. And so he would say, there's nothing wrong whatsoever in killing an infant. There's nothing wrong whatsoever, especially in the womb. There's nothing wrong whatsoever, even up to the age of five. He would say, they have no value till they start to bring things back to society, and some of the value might be even that the parent loves them. But if the parent doesn't love them, then valueless. Pretty atrocious when you follow his line of thinking. And one of the things that Peter Singer will say is much of his stuff that's published publicly, he says, that's about as much as I can release because that's about all that America can handle at this point. Because that is a dark, 
dark road to walk down. And here, one of the things that Jesus starts to identify is, if I have said children have value amongst my people and in front of me as God himself, you have no right to exclude them in that manner. You have no right to cast them out as if they were demons. You have no right to send them away saying you have no place with Jesus. He's saying they absolutely do. How easy is it for us to diminish what Jesus says here because we don't know exactly what he's after. We don't know exactly what their value is. We start to say, how do we trust him? Why do we know that Jesus can give them this type of value? Why do we know that he can give them this type of place? And quite simply, if we believe that Jesus is God, we're saying, well, God is the only one who can give value. So it's quite simply because God said they have value within the people of God, that they have value. And oftentimes, we ask the question of, like, why are these children here? And if you know anything about having children around, oftentimes there's kind of a busyness around children. And at family events, what happens? You often have the kids' table, and this is not to shame anyone for having a kids' table, but there is kind of this sense that, like, let's kind of put them over here. Let's move them off and away so that they don't disrupt our speech and the things that we want to talk about and get through. And, you know, they enjoy each other better anyway. So let's do that type of thing. And this was certainly the sense that it's like, well, it wasn't that big a deal. The disciples were just saying, like, we need to have grown-up time. We need to talk about serious kingdom things. We need to talk about the things with Jesus that only he can deal with us on. Because salvation in the kingdom of God is certainly only a topic for adults. And this is the root cause of a very serious sin issue. To say, I get to describe what has value and attribute it that way. And Jesus swiftly says, the attitude towards children is patently false. And he says, it has no place in my kingdom. He was indignant with them. Children have always had a place within the people of God and continue to this day to have a place within the people of God. This is not necessarily speaking specifically around salvation, but it is saying, do they belong within the midst of the people of God? Absolutely. What did God teach his people from the very beginning with his law? Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's saying, you are to disciple your children. Teach them my law. As you rise and as you go by the way all the time, you are to teach them these things. They belong amongst my people. And you are to show them my law. You are to walk with them through that. Explain it to them. Make them understand it. This is the place that the people of God were to view children in. To say, yeah, they belong in the room. They belong with you. They belong coming along with you and understanding the things of God equally. And so if we come to a place where we say, let's move the children out until they're ready for the topics about the kingdom of God, they're ready to hear from God himself, we should expect the Lord to be indignant with us as well. To say, these children are very capable of responding to me and being in the room with me and hearing even my law, hearing the way I operate, hearing who their God is, they belong there. 
And it would be right for us to even be indignant in our own hearts for those who start to reject children in this way. So firstly, we do see that God values them by identifying their place in the kingdom. He's saying very specifically, to such belongs the kingdom of God. which should at the very least help you understand <laughs> how many of the disciples do you wish you would have, they, they were probably thinking, I wish he would have said that about me. To you guys, the disciples belong to the kingdom of God. And he's saying, no, to these children belongs the kingdom of God. Don't let that miss you on <laughs> how significant that statement would have been to them. Their indignation probably would have rose and said, I wanted that. I wanted that word to me. And you just gave it to these kids, the people I expected least. So he does value them by identifying their place in the kingdom, but he also values them by highlighting an essential characteristic in them that is necessary for the kingdom of God. He highlights an essential characteristic in them that is necessary for the kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 15 here. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What he says here is really quite shocking. The disciples had been working hard. They'd been doing all of these great things. They'd been casting out demons. They'd been learning with the things that Jesus had been teaching them. They'd been saying, sure, the Pharisees, they got it wrong. Sure, all these different guys that got it wrong. But we're now walking with Jesus. We're learning what it means to be a disciple of God and he's saying, the thing you really need is to respond to me like these children. Respond to your God and Father. That's the type of relationship disciples have. Pretty shocking to say all that stuff is well and good, but a primary characteristic that I am after is that characteristic that is most naturally found in children. What is it? Children trust pretty easily with their parents. They say, where, where are we going today? I'm willing to go. They start to move and follow and be shaped and formed by their parents. There is a trust that they have, especially the, young, the younger they are, the truer this is. With the baby, it's like anything you, tell, you, you know, convince that baby to do, they're going to do. They just want milk, take care of me, change my diaper, soothe me. They're very dependent upon their parents. In fact, totally dependent. So dependent that if they were left alone, there is no question that that baby would die. That's the level of dependence that Jesus is pointing towards with his disciples, saying, do you see that characteristic within those children of trust and dependence? They are capable of one of the most essential characteristics of believers, to trust to believe, to follow me. That type of characteristic is something that Jesus is wanting to highlight as a very central attitude within these children. I was watching a television show just on, there's different ones on like making swords and knives and bows and, you know, these things just grab me. They're very interesting, right? Um, one of them was on bow making. And so I've worked a little bit around wood because I was a framer for a number of years. And so I learned at least the very basics around wood, at least certain things that make wood warp and, 
and twist in funny ways. And at the very least, I at least know how to crown it and flip it so the bow's on a certain side. And you're like, okay, I know a few things about wood. But you get in with some of these bow makers, and they're looking at a piece of wood, and they're like, that one's absolute garbage. And I'm like, if I was sitting there with them, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I've worked with wood a lot. Like, show me what you're seeing because I don't necessarily see it. And they're like, yeah, that, that one won't work at all. And it looks like a perfectly fine, absolutely straight piece of wood. I'm like, we could frame a great wall with that piece. <laughs> it's a good one. And there's something that the bow makers are looking for in the tightness of the grain, the way it's moving up and down the board, the way it's oriented in the board itself. And they're saying, I know exactly how many bows I can get out of this piece of wood based on the way the grain looks. And in a similar way, Jesus is looking into his disciples, and he's saying, there's all these things about you that you guys are looking for, trying to pick out, and he's saying, that's the characteristic I need. That trust, that faith, that belief. It is almost like he is a master woodworker entering in, saying, within the hearts of men and women, saying, that's the thing. And if you're making more disciples, I want to teach you how to see that thing as well, and to highlight it, and to bring it forward. Because how tempting is it to say, oh, that, that person's doing great things. Surely that's the reason they're going to get into heaven. Oh, that person's just generally humble. Surely that's the reason they're going to get into heaven. And Jesus is saying, no. And he walks through the midst of the crowd, almost. You can kind of get the picture. And he could say, that's the thing. And only the one who understands the soul and the heart and the thing required with that level of expertise and mastery would be able to identify it with that much skill. He's saying, I created you. I made you. I understand sin. I understand the fullness of sin. I understand exactly what the problem is. And the only thing that I need, that I need to highlight for you right now, is this is what you need to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as we're listening to Jesus here, we should see a master at work in discipleship saying, that type of trust is the thing I teach to my kids. Trust your heavenly father. As I fail at trust, I want to confess to those things because I want them to see a trust that is like a child with their parent. I want to model that and to show it. And oftentimes... We can identify these wrong characteristics in ourselves and disciples and put pressure upon ourselves that is not necessarily what Jesus would do himself. And to say, what are the key things within my heart and mind and life that are essential for me to be accepted by Jesus? To be in the room, so to speak. To be allowed into the kingdom. What are the things that need to be there? And I don't know about you, but there's been times when life gets hard Life gets messy. Things start to shuffle around. All of your normal expectations of what life ought to look like start to get thrown out the window. And you say, I thought I knew how to be a good Christian. And then this hit. I thought I knew how to do these things really well. I thought I was heading down the right path of what the greatness and discipleship really meant. I thought I was accomplishing great things for the kingdom of God. And then... A miscarriage hits, and then schooling hits, job loss, death in your family, sickness, ailment. Numbers of things come your way, and you're saying, I'm not able to do the things I once did. Or 
There is so much sin, sin and shame and guilt lumped upon your life because of all the things you've done in the past. You're wondering, I don't know that I'll ever get there. Or if the person that I love in my family will ever get there because of all this in their life. How essential at this point that you're able to listen to Jesus and say, what is the most essential piece of discipleship? And to point right back at that thing. And for us, oftentimes we can say, I don't even know if I'm a believer anymore. One of the things that others have ministered to me in is to say, well, Paul, certainly you're a believer. Why? Because I see you trust Jesus. I see you have faith in Jesus. I see the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming out in you in peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And I'm like, I don't see them. And And they're able to point into my life and say, here it is. In the most minuscule fashion, I see peace. I remember one time we had lost a job and it was pretty devastating. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know what the next day is going to look like. Pretty heavy and low and wondering, like, maybe I should change careers. What, what is next? And someone had walked into my life, total non-believer, and they'd, basically just said, like, in the midst of me going through all of this, they're saying, man, you are, like, one of the most peaceful people I've ever seen in regards to this situation. Like, I'd be losing my mind. Like, well, I am losing my mind. But one of the things they saw was the fruit of the Spirit coming out that I couldn't even see myself. And Jesus is saying, the most essential piece for you in your discipleship is this type of childlike trust upon God. In fact, it shouldn't diminish as you get older, but you should press further and further into this. You start here and you grow in absolute faith and trust of Jesus to the point where you say, if I am separated from Jesus for a fraction of a moment, I'm in trouble. And it starts to feel like less of a weight when Scripture says pray continually and more of a blessing to say, can I please Can I please pray continually? Would you let me? But oftentimes we hear that and we say, do I really have to do that? Do I really have to? God does, like a master woodworker, enter in in discipleship and say, that's the thing I want you to see. That trust, that faith that those children have. That is the thing, if you want to be in my kingdom, that you must have. The next thing we do see that he shows us is he values these children by actually giving them his blessing. He actually gives them his blessing. Let's read verse 16 here. He says, and he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And for us, we can hear that and just think, well, that's just simple. Like, rather meaningless. Like, like, what's the big deal? And yet, the disciples would have certainly understood what Jesus was doing here. The significance of what Jesus was after here. And to show them that, one, I am God. I get to bless who I want to bless. But, two, there is something more behind this blessing that they would have known about. And we are asking a question, like, what, what did Jesus just do? When he gave him this blessing. What did he just do? And it does feel rather meaningless to us. But ritual blessing was well known. 
for the Israelites. Ritual blessing was very well known. And in fact, oftentimes, it actually conferred something very specific. If you go into Deuteronomy, Aaron would often give a blessing to the people. And he said, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. The Lord is giving you favor when you rightly deserve no favor. Like that is a very specific palpable blessing. That one doesn't always make sense to us. But he would actually blessings would go even further. Sometimes it would even confer an office. You received a blessing and now you are a priest. Now you are so on and so on. There was something specific carried over in that blessing. Did the blessing mean anything? Well, yes and no. The fact that God gave it, yes, there's something very substantial behind it. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, there was a transfer of office. Even inheritances were given by blessing. You remember the situation with Jacob and Esau, how they fought for the blessing. It had substance to them. And we enter in here and all the disciples are wondering, how do I get the blessing of Jesus? How do I get the green card to head into the kingdom of God? What are you going to do to allow me in? And Jesus walks past them. He grabs one of the child and they're saying, don't do it. And he's saying, yes, I'm going to do it. And he gives them a blessing that has substance and meaning. And all of it within the context of the kingdom of God. And we're saying, what did you just do, Jesus? I don't know if your heart just leapt a little bit. But it might to say, Jesus, do you have the authority to do that? You have to remember that this is Jesus, God, the creator of all things, the creator of everything from before the foundations of the world. He existed, and it tells us in Scripture that he names all of his own. He knows who are his, and he is going to save who he wills. And if we want to speak back to him and say, Jesus, how dare you save that person? Don't you know who they are? Jesus is saying, I know exactly who they are, and I am God, and how dare you try and tell me who I can save and who I can't save? So we don't actually know if he saved this child, but at the very least, he gave them this blessing that seems very closely related with the kingdom. And one of the things he might have been trying to teach the disciples is, are you comfortable with me giving that to someone you might not think deserves it? Are you comfortable with God saving who he chooses? And that that might even include some children. Are we comfortable with that? It sure like, I mean, cuts the legs out of our expectations of certain works and things that we must do. It's like, well, what did that child do? You know what they know how to do? Hold their hands out and receive things. And the disciples obviously were pretty frustrated with that, I would imagine, to say, Don't you know everything I've done for you, Jesus? And Jesus is saying, yes, I know everything you've done for me. This child is exhibiting the very thing that I need them to do. Receive the kingdom. Receive the things that I've done for you. Receive the blessing that I've given to you. It doesn't mean that those of us in church leadership, those of us in church are Jesus. I don't have the authority to give that type of blessing of the kingdom of God. I don't have the ability to see down to the heart of someone to know if they've truly become a child of God. I don't have the ability to be able to exude that authority, to give it or take it away, but I do have some instruction from Jesus here to say he has a positive attitude towards children, and I might need to expect that he could work in the lives of children if they have the ability to trust 
if they have that core characteristic that I need in my own heart for entrance into the kingdom of God, I should at least value them to that point to say, you belong around the people of God, with the things of God, hearing the words of God, hearing the gospel, responding to this. One of the things that we regularly press into in this church is this idea that our kids belong here. So it's not by accident that our, our Sunday school hour is not during church. It's not by accident that our nursery only goes up to a certain age. We want to say our kids belong in the worship service. Does that mean that every single person in this room is saved? No. That's not true of adults. That's not true of kids. But there is a sense that they belong in the room hearing the words of the gospel, hearing the words of Jesus for themselves. We model the things in our nursery around the things that we want them to hear. We model the things in Sunday school around this. We want families to be teaching this, to be shaping this, to say that you need to hear the words of God. Teach them all that I have commanded you. And we say that includes the children in our midst. And the core of our temptation is to say, I get to choose where I'm going to go with that. I get to choose what I'm going to do with that. And in fact, to push those who we think aren't capable of it to the outside, worthy of it to the outside, and this was indeed Israel's temptation at times to say, kids, God had told them very specifically that your kids were to be at these different events. You're to teach them the entirety of the law. You're to help them with that, to walk with them in this, to teach them the entirety of who God is, what he's done for Israel. And what did they end up doing as they took steps further and further away from God? Focusing only on their individual peace, prosperity, happiness, this is the core root of sin. And what did they do? Eventually got to the point where they accepted other gods. And not did they not bring their children in. In fact, they were so concerned with their own lives and hearts and, and everything for themselves that they actually were willing to sacrifice their own children, murder them on altars, that they might have some blessing themselves. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31. This is God responding to this type of behavior. He says, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. It's not to say God wasn't aware that this was going on, but God is saying, Where did you come up with this? It certainly was not within anything that I commanded you to do. It certainly was not my attitude towards children. In fact, it's an abomination. This was one of the reasons that God sent them off into captivity because they had walked so far away from God to say, our kids are of no value. In fact, we get to do whatever we want. This attitude of sinfulness starts at a very core root here to say, First, I matter more than the least of these. You can see the disciples pressing in and pressing in and pressing in. And Jesus saying, that's the heart issue that I despise. 
You care more about your own salvation and your own comfort and your own place and position before me than you do these children who need to hear it equally, who have no rights in this, their culture, who have no worth in that culture. And Jesus is saying, that sin issue is something that makes me indignant. Something we need to hear as the church. And as we've fallen into the same types of patterns, saying, is that really that big a deal? Kind of just push them off for a little while, wait till they mature up a little bit, and then they can hear the gospel. And Jesus is saying, yes, it's a big deal. You are to disciple your children. You are to care for them. You are to bring them in with you and teach them the way they are to walk. Teach them the way they are to respond to me. In fact, care about them before you care about yourself even. This is the characteristic of God himself. God understands the value of children rightly. He understands the full worth of them. He is the one who's given that worth to them. And he's going to say they have a certain specific value. And it is far more than you even understand or can comprehend. And he says they are mine. (laughs) Who are you to do this? Who are you to restrict them from this? And this is the same God who understands what this feels like. In fact... That core sin issue that sent their own kids to the altar, that core sin issue that says they don't matter, I'm going to keep pushing them out, Jesus says, I'm going to actually send my own son for your sin. My own son will I give for your unwillingness to care for them. My own son will I bring into the world and give of him. Oftentimes we see Jesus as being very willing to enter in himself, but we don't often hear the goodness of God in that. To say, that is abhorrent to me, and yet I will send the one whom I love most. What does he say in Mark? He said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's the one he sent to the cross to say, people have the value that God has given to them. People have the value that God has given to them, and we have to learn to listen to it. And as we reject God's perspective here, he could have rightly rejected us, but he didn't. He said, I am entering in, I'm dying on your behalf. And in the New Testament, this attitude towards children, it continues on. This isn't just Old Testament God, this isn't just... Jesus in general, this is actually something that would carry on. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to this group of men and women, and he's preaching the gospel to them, and he's telling them all these things that just happened. And he's saying, Jesus accomplished all of this, and you rejected him. And they say, what do we do? He says, repent, be baptized. And he takes the next step and he says, the promise that God has brought into this world, the promise of redemption, who is it for? It's for you and your children. Your children belong in this plan of discipleship. Go and disciple all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded to you. This promise is for you and your children. Jesus has rightly recognized within the world there are many people who will respond to his gospel, many people who will reject his gospel. And for us, we 
preach broadly. I don't save souls. I don't know how to save souls. I cannot describe that to you. I can't even tell you how Jesus is able to make the decisions he's able to make here. But the attitude of trust is for us to say, Lord, I trust you with my children. And I will bring them into this. And I will learn to exhibit those same attitudes myself. So as we think about these things, we can learn how to orient our hearts, our minds, our families, our lives, our church in a very different way than the culture does. Oftentimes our culture says, you have no right in the lives of your children to tell them anything. You have no right to enter in and give them any direction about any of this stuff. In fact, it is up to them to decide even their own gender. It is up to them to decide how they want to be educated. It's up to them to decide what's right and wrong. It's up to them to decide, you name it. We're handing it over to the culture. They're saying, well, let's just leave it to total absolute pandemonium. And God is saying, no, you have the right, the responsibility, and these are things I am commanding to you. And they belong where? In the church. And so for us in the church, we have to recognize Culture's pulling extremely hard on our kids and for our families. And if you are to listen to the culture, it's like, who's going to take them? Well, the culture's going to take them, and it's going to do whatever it wants with them and spit them out. It's pulling very, very hard, and it sounds very, very reasonable. It sounds almost like Satan when he enters in with Jesus, and he said, you could turn these, loaves, these, these rocks into loaves, right? doesn't seem like that big a deal. And Jesus understands exactly what he is doing. He says, no. I trust every word that comes from the Father. I am completely in perfect relationship with him, and I will never do anything apart from him. Jesus understands that. And as we enter in with our own kids, God has been very clear. These are to be raised within the instruction and admonition of everything within the church, and you are to do this. And it's tempting at times just to say, like, well, it's, it does sound harsh and hostile to teach them, to keep them, to raise them up this way. And I can't control their salvation. But they are going to be grabbed at from every different direction. And if we say, you don't belong here like the disciples do, where do you think they're going to go? Every which direction. So at the very least, we say, you belong here. Even if they grow up and say, I want to go somewhere else. You know what I want them to remember? Just like the prodigal son. It was better back with my father. It was better back in the church. That's where I knew community. That's where I knew my identity. That's where I knew who this God was. That's where I knew true forgiveness. That's where I knew true fellowship with believers. That's the type of thing that we want to form as the church, to say, you belong here. Let us do, seek to understand Jesus' words here, how they can shape and form our own hearts and minds and communities, trusting God for salvation. Let's do pray. Father God, we do come before you. Lord, I am humbled by your rich wisdom, your rich grace, how as a master builder you understand our hearts and souls and minds perfectly. You understand the things that we need. 
as the church. You understand the, thing, the broken areas of our own community here. Lord, would you help us to trust you for these things? Would you help us to turn to you again and again and again to say, I cannot be anywhere if I am not in fellowship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. Lord, help us to foster this mind amongst ourselves, this heart of trust that we see so clearly in our own children. Foster that towards you and you alone. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even as we gather this morning, we do have the privilege and the rich ability, the, the richness of a meal that Jesus has left for us that communicates much on his behalf. Jesus didn't leave us without anything. In fact, he says, it's better if I go away, I'll leave you with the Holy Spirit. Strange thing for us to even understand. And he leaves us many, many things for us to be shaped and formed by. And one of the things he left us by is this meal, communion. To say, be reminded of all that I have accomplished on your behalf. Be reminded of these central things that bind you together. The blood and the body of Jesus broken for you, shed for you. It is this rich picture of the gospel for us. Every Sunday as we gather, we can gather in fellowship with one another. How? Only by the blood of Christ. It is quite rich for us to be able to proclaim this Every single Sunday. So if it is not your profession that Jesus is Lord, that he has died for your sins, that you trust in him and him alone for salvation and have confessed sin before him, this meal is not for you. I would say wait. Ask questions. doesn't mean, just as we looked at, that we push you away and say, well, you don't even get to ask questions about this. We say, no, come, ask questions. We want to explain it to you. Oftentimes one of the things that I'll regularly do with my own children who aren't quite ready is I will just talk to them about the elements. Proclaim them. Help them understand them. What are these things? And I want them to wrestle with it, to understand it. This is, in fact, one of the most beautiful object lessons you could imagine. It's like Jesus is saying, here's bread. My body was broken for you and it's just as real as this bread. This wine... My blood was spilled for you, just as real, just as tangible, just as full and as rich as this wine is before you. You can grab hold of these things. Even my five-year-old can grab hold of that. <laughs> She's like, I get bread, I get juice. Like, there are things that I'm waiting for and watching for in her, but there's an element that she, as Jesus pointed to, she can probably gather the ability to trust much better than I can. In fact, not probably. I think Jesus just told me she can. So learning to foster that type of relationship. So if this is not your confession, I would say, wait, watch, come, ask, but do ask questions. But for those of you who believe this is indeed a rich meal, let's do be reminded of all that Jesus left for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. One of the things he said to the Corinthian church was this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Indeed, rich, rich words for us as the church to gather around this common meal together. Let's do pray as we receive the, the meal that the Lord has left for us here. Father God, we do praise you and thank you for the rich blessings you've given to us as a church. For your sacrifice upon the cross. For us to be able to gather around this meal rejoicing with one another. That it is finished. You have accomplished all that was necessary. And just like in salvation, we receive this meal from you. Lord, we pray that this would encourage our hearts this morning to turn from our sin, to repent of our sin, and to come before you open-handed, receiving the blessings you've given to us. Shape us and form us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We'll have the side aisles come first and the center aisle come afterwards. Please do come forward.
teach. So teach my soul to rise to you. When temptation comes in my way, when I cannot stand or fall on you, Jesus, you're my hope. So teach my song. So teach my soul to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, when I cannot stand or fall on you, Jesus, you're my hope And when I cannot stand or fall on you, you're my hope and stay and Lord I need you Lord I need you and every hour I need you my one defense my righteousness oh God how I need Lord, I 